yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You bet your ass, baby. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast, Podcast. with host A. Trunk. What's up, everybody? It's Eddie Trunk, and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, new every Thursday on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Be sure to subscribe so you do not miss an episode, and thank you for listening. And don't forget, everything you hear on the Eddie Trunk Podcast originated on my radio show, which is called Trunk Nation, and heard live Monday through Friday, 3 to 5 Eastern, on Faction Talk, Sirius XM Channel 103, or anytime full shows on the Sirius XM app. If you're only listening to the podcast and you can get Sirius XM radio, you're only getting a tiny fraction of what I do each and every day. Come on board and join us. And I got a way for you to sample it if you'd like, totally free. All you got to do is go to SiriusXM.com slash Eddie Trunk. You can get a free three-month trial subscription to SiriusXM, and it will not require a credit card for you to sign up, and you can listen and sample for three months, whether it be through the app or over the radio, and we'd love for you to do that so you can get a full picture of everything going on on the radio each and every day, and again, it'll cost you nothing. You get three months free to check it out. So again, SiriusXM.com slash Eddie Trunk. We have... um, This week on the podcast, an interview that I did about a week and a half, two weeks ago, it is with legendary songwriter Desmond Child, a guy that has been behind the scenes as a co-writer on some of the biggest songs in rock music and pop music for that matter. Uh, Desmond started his career as a songwriter working with other people all the way back in 1979 when he co-wrote the Big Kiss disco hit. I was made for loving you and uh, did a bunch of stuff for kiss and Alice Cooper and huge songs for Bon Jovi, like living on a prayer and others, some Aerosmith stuff. Desmond has a book out about his life and his career. We talk about that book. We talk about some of his story and the art of writing hit songs with him. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So with that being said, let's get right to it. My interview with songwriter Desmond child this week on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Desmond, how are you? Eddie, how you doing? It's so great to be back. Yeah, I was just saying, it probably was a couple years ago that we chatted and uh, had a great conversation. I think at that time you had mentioned you were working on a book, and uh, here it is. It's out. It's it's been seven years working on the book. I call it my seven-year jailhouse confession. Uh, it was a real reckoning. I didn't know what I was getting into, actually. But once I started telling my story, all of these memories started coming out, and I started to see, wow, I've been through a lot. And you you see it reflected in the songs that I helped to collaborate on. Yeah, what's the big difference between writing a book versus writing a song? A song is, is like four minutes long. <laughs> right. 
and writing a book is wow. You know, I, I just got finished doing the audio book and that took me like a month and a half to do. I mean, it's mm-hmm. that, and it was, it was worse than writing it because when you say it, then you get all choked, choked up, you know? And so, um, so I'm still working on that. But the, the thing is, is that when I look, you know, across, you know, the breadth of, you know, length and breadth of my life, you know, I've been extraordinarily lucky to amazing mentors and, and people that opened doors for me, like Paul Stanley of KISS. He was the one that discovered me and gave my my name to John Bon Jovi, who called me and then, you know, we wrote, you know, You Give Love a Bad Name the very first day with Richie Sambora and Living on a Prayer and then Aerosmith, Dude Looks Like a Lady, What It Takes, Crazy, Angel. You know, it was like I really stepped into a, a magical world and it's all because of my mentor, Paul Stanley of KISS. Who actually wrote and wrote a, a beautiful foreword for the book? I guess he was the no-brainer to go to, uh, given what you just said, especially to be the guy to write the foreword. Yes, I mean, I, I say I say it in the book. He taught me how to write, you know, stadium anthems the kiss way, you know, which is the protagonist always has to be the victor. There can never be the loser, and so that kind of feeling of upward, you know, hope. Uh, is is something that I think you can feel like that thread going through songs like Living on a Prayer, you know, just that, that joy and that, that reaching up. That's all because of Kiss. There would be no Desmond Child without Paul Stanley. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's really amazing, that part of the story. Now, Desmond, just in full disclosure, and I told the publicist this, um, I have not had a chance to read the book because of my schedule. I have it right here. I can't wait to read it. But I know the book just came out and they wanted to have you on to promote it in release week. So I totally get that. But maybe down the line, I might be hitting you up to do another round because I'm sure after I read this, I'm going to want to dig in so much more on the stories in here. Um, but, you know, I know enough about your work to talk to you and I want to let people know the book is out now. I just, in, in all honesty, I just have, I can't wait to read it. I just have not had the time, but I look forward to doing so. So I'm sure there's stuff in here that I'm going to want to ask you about again down the line. Well, I wanted to make sure I didn't write a book like, um, and then I did, and then I succeeded, and this is the award I got. And I mean, you know, those books, you know, you just want to throw them in the garbage, you know, after 10 pages. I wanted a book that really showed, you know, an American story, you know, being, you know, my mother was Cuban. Uh, we lived in the Cuban exile community in, in Miami and in, in the projects of Miami and Liberty City. And, you know, my mother was a songwriter. Her name was Elena Casals, known as La Musa. And I, I just wanted to make sure I could take care of my mother. And so I worked hard, you know, like the hustle was big, you know, to try to make sure that I succeeded so I could take care of her. I mean, she always dreamed of having a mansion on Miami Beach. Well, you know what? I bought four and I gave her one. How's that? <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> That's beautiful. I want, I want to go back to something like, so, so for people that don't know your, your whole story, and of course, be, you know, myself being in the music industry 40 years, of course I know all the stuff you've done and the people you've worked with and the arc of your story just through the business. 
But for people that don't know, you started out want, uh, as a performer yourself, and you had a band and an album called uh, Desmond Child and Rouge. And that's actually, and I did read, I did glance through the book a little bit. I did read that uh, in, in Paul's foreword, he says that he's basically in 77 or something walking through New York City. He sees a poster for the band playing in New York City. He was interested in the band, the look of the band, the dynamic. He goes to see you and that's where the whole thing happens. Can you take us through that? Because that's a really kind of pivotal point there. And I find it really interesting with songwriters and I've interviewed many of them where there's a pivotal point where they go from being the the person on the stage, the person performing, the person trying to quote unquote make it. But then there's this shift and they kind of like, wait a minute, there's another way to do this. I'm going to be the, for lack of a better term, and I know this is mentioned in the book, song doctor. Or I'm going to be the person helping to write the songs where you, you're going to have some anonymity, but you're also going to have great success. So that, to me, that's always a pivotal point. And you kind of did that, right? Because you initially wanted to be the person out front, right? Well, you know, I wanted to be the biggest star on earth, like, like a rock star. And, um, you know, we were getting there, but then, you know, uh, our group fell apart. And, you know, it was one of those things where I could never get back in the saddle, you know. Uh, so I, I, by default, uh, the, the day I met Paul Stanley, the night I met Paul Stanley, he had come to a little club called Tracks, which was on 72nd Street, literally underground. You had to go down this deep little staircase. And uh, he poked his head around the corner of, of, the, of, the, of the curtain. We were standing there getting ready to go on. He said, hey, I'm Paul Stanley of KISS. I just wanted you guys to know that George Harrison of the Beatles is in the front table. And it was like, gulp. And so I looked and really? sure enough, there he was. And so we got to sing for one of the Beatles. What, what about that? And so then after the show, he came back and said, I really like your sound. Um, why don't we try writing a song together? So he wrote a song with me for Desmond Child and Rouge called The Fight, which was on our first record. And then he said, OK, well, let's write a song for, for my band. OK. And uh, we wrote I Was Made for Loving You. And I think I got the better end of that deal. What do you think? <laughs> well, did the now that was an interesting thing too because I wasn't aware of the fight, and I know that you said that was on the record. So nothing be that song didn't become a hit, obviously. No, I mean our album. You know, we sold. You know, maybe you know in those days, uh, you if you sold two hundred thousand records, it was a complete failure. Right. You know? And so we, and that was the turning point in history musically, where we went from having disco and R&B music and all of that. Um, suddenly, um, there was this DJ that, you know, started riling people up and saying, you know, disco is gay, disco is black, you know, uh, what we want is white music, rock and roll, rock music. And so, the, you know, he had these events where people brought their disco records and threw them in a pile and they burned them. Sound familiar? <laughs> and uh, uh, then... Well, that was in Chicago. Was, that, was the big, that, was, that was the big thing in Chicago where that was that big incident yeah. with... Um, yeah. I forget, Steve Dahl, I think, was the guy's name and they did the thing in the during a, a baseball game or something. Yeah, I mean, the Nazis did it, and now they're doing it again. <laughs> you know, the same kind of uh, swing the other way. 
and uh, you know, so I I I just shifted to rock, and so we made another record really fast, and it came out the same year, 1979. That was a rock album, uh, and so you know, all the pressure of everything. We toured the country. We were on Saturday Night Live. We weren't really equipped emotionally to deal with all that, and our and our group fell apart. So you know. Writing for other people was my B plan, you know, it really was. I mean, A plan was rock star, B plan helped to create rock stars. <laughs> and yeah. in the end, I I think, you know, looking back, it's like it was meant to be that way. I don't think I would have made a good rock star. I'm so thin-skinned. Well, I mean, really. <laughs> the people I work with, you know, they get criticized and it just rolls off their back. With me, like something somebody said 40 years ago is still bugging me, you know? Right, 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 right. Yeah, well, that's not, yeah, when you're going to put yourself out there in the public eye, yeah, you can't be that thin-skinned. That's not going to, that's not going to work. You know, I'm curious, uh, you know, this pivotal point where Paul Stanley shows up at one of your shows, at that time, Kiss is the, one of the biggest bands in the world. They're also anonymous, so, you know, nobody really knew what Paul looked like, but he shows up. George Harrison's there, etc. Were you a Kiss fan, and were you aware that the song you co-wrote with Paul for the Dynasty album, I Was Made For Loving You, 79, becomes and still is a massively popular song? But at the time, were you aware and and was there talk about how incredibly polarizing it was going to be, despite the fact that it was a hit, that it for this bombastic hard rock band to come out with a song that sounded like that? Was there any talk about that while you were writing it, or it was being you know where you guys were talking about it? Was there any dialogue about that? Like, hey, this is risky to be doing this. Well, Desmond Tyler Rouge had a lot of R&B roots because I came from Miami, the projects of Miami, and uh, we were always listening to R&B music and Motown especially. And Paul is a big fan of Motown. So if you listen to I Was Made For Loving You, you know, I was made for loving you, right? It's sort of like standing in the shadow of love. You know, Mm -hmm. and it really has that pulse. It really wasn't disco. To us, it was Motown, and we... Had got it in our minds to create a new, a new kind of format to put hard rock guitars to uh, like a dance beat. uh, You know, it it was sort of like revolutionary because from that moment on, all these people got inspired by that song, and then all of a sudden there was Prince, and all of a sudden there was Michael Jackson doing, you know, Beat It, and there was Madonna, and all these people integrating rock music with pop and dance and and all of that. Uh, you know, and so I I think it was revolutionary for its time. And, uh, you know, we know that Gene Simmons has never liked that song. But, right. <laughs> I mean, he, he was in this, mo- they were in this movie called Why Him? They sort of made a cameo appearance. Do you remember that with James Franco? And no. so they're like the, the band and full kiss regalia is in somebody's living room, like, playing I Was Made For Loving You, and there's Gene with a smile on his face. And I say, I guess the check was big. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's still in there. It's still in their show. And it's become a song that like, you know, again, at that time when it came out, I was being a massive Kiss fan as a kid. I I remember it was, uh, you know, I was like 14 or something when the song came out. 
And, uh, you know, I was, look, at that point, anything kissed through at me. I was all on board with it. But it de- it was a huge change. And I know Paul's talked about this in his book and everything where things shifted and it became, it was like a two-edged sword because it got them on the radio, it became this big song, but it also really alienated a ton of the hardcore fan base. But, you know, what I'm interested about, too, is when you talk about your history there, and we'll, we'll talk beyond this in a second, Kiss uh, on their next record went, uh, chased that and continued down like a pop rock, even dance mode on some of that with their follow-up record. But for you, it would be a few albums before you would work with Paul and kiss again. Later on, you did a lot with them, but, um, why was that? Cause you'd think coming off of a massive hit that you co-wrote in 79, that all of a sudden next album, you know, every other song would be a Desmond co-write. Why was there a gap there, do you think? I, you know, maybe it was Gene's, you know, strong reaction against it because it wasn't on brand with Kiss right. uh, for him in his mind. Then it sort of like became so <laughs> in, in, you know, across, you know, the decades. But, um, you know, I, I co-wrote a song with Paul, uh, Heaven's on Fire. And yeah. that, that was another hit for them. So, I mean, Paul and I really enjoyed each other's company. So, you know, we just, you know, kept writing. And so then eventually the songs we wrote started, you know, creeping into the next records they were making. I love a song called Who Wants to Be Lonely. I do too. Who Wants to Be Lonely. I just love that song. Great song. um, It's on Asylum. Yes. And so I think that, um, you know, I was also extraordinarily busy because I started getting calls, you know, from bands like Bon Jovi and, um, who, by the way, Paul gave my number to, to, uh, John and said, you should write with this guy. And so, you know, I owe everything to Paul. I really do. There'd be no Desmond Child without Paul Stanley. That's for sure. And, uh, then Aerosmith and then Alice Cooper, Joan Jett, Cher, Michael Bolton, you know, I we, I had like a run, a very long run, you know, in the 1980s of, you know, hit after hit. There was, at one point, I had five songs in the top 20. You know, some were going up, some were going down, but they were all in the top 20. So I was like a wonder child, you know, that um, I was I was kind of just putting one foot in front of the other and realized because my group didn't work out that I had to do something so I could make sure that I could take care of my mom. So I just thought, okay, this might not last, but for right now, I'm just going to work and keep working, keep working. You know what? I, I'm still doing that. I never, I never stop working. You know, I'm still trying. And, uh, over the last couple of years, I had a huge hit with Ava Max, uh, called Kings and Queens, which was uh, number? It was thirty-seven weeks at number one on the adult contemporary chart. Thirty-seven wow. weeks. I mean, that's Despacito land, right? <laughs> and oh, yeah. um, you know, but to me, style is really secondary. What's important is the message, and that's why I've been able to shift, you know, shape shift into whatever group I've been working with. And when I went back to Miami, uh, to Miami Beach. Um, my husband and I decided, uh, you know, we're going to leave California. And that's when I discovered Ricky Martin and then helped to revolutionize Latin music at that time because I was, I was wanting to use all that I had learned from Paul Stanley 
about stadium anthems and put it into Latin music. And we did that, fist in the air, you know, upside, inside, out, right? <laughs> Living la vida loca. You know, it was, it was a turning point that never stopped because it ushered in reggaeton. I mean, you know, Despacito, you know, 20 years later was one of the biggest songs in the entire world. And so it was, it was amazing to, you know, also when I worked with Bon Jovi, he was coming out of what they call, a, you know, heavy metal and hair bands and all of that. But the fact is that if you listen to You Give Love a Bad Name and uh, Living on a Prayer, it had that Motown, you know, pumping bass underneath. You know, baseline, sure. You know, um, it, and so combining R&B in with heavy metal and then also doing storytelling like a, like a, like a singer-songwriter would instead of, you know, just songs that said she's hot. You know, saying living on a prayer is epic because it tells the story in the third person about a struggling couple that, um, you know, was trying to make ends meet. But the song is infused with hope. And that is the thing that, you know, you, you may not believe in God, but you're sunk if you don't believe in hope. Right? <laughs> True. Yeah. And, you know, when you sang a second ago, Living La Vida Loca, huge hit you co-wrote with Ricky Martin, uh, when you t when you make that comparison, it's really eye opening because you you can see how if you if that song had been produced with electric guitars all up front, that sort of anthemic chorus absolutely, in my view, would have worked for a hard rock song. It could have been that. Like, you know, it, it really comes down to the way it's it's uh, it's produced and the direction you're going to go out with it. But there is a lot of interchangeability there, isn't there? Yes. I mean, if you <laughs> recently a band called Autumn Kings did a version of Living La Vida Loca, all like, you know, really like modern rock. And it sounds awesome. You know, so yeah. people want to check that out. I mean, it's it's a you know, that's when you know you have a good song because it's timeless. And, yeah. you know, people, I mean, I've heard jazz versions of my songs. I've heard, you know, you know, electronic, you know, versions, like artsy versions of, of these same songs. And, um, you know, it just, you know, you wrote a good song. And, you know, the, the yeah. thing is, is that, you know, we, we recently, like last year, we got the Spotify um honored living on a prayer with uh saying that we had gotten one billion streams i saw that so so if you think about that you know how long has spotify been in business like eight years imagine all the other plays that we had before that on radio and and in many other ways um you know i i think itunes right all of the, all of these innovations that have come along the songs still hold up and, uh, you know, one of the things that's happened is, like, people know the song. They don't necessarily know the artist. Mm -hmm. they, you know, in you know, some jungle somewhere, somebody knows, you know, I was made for loving you. They don't necessarily have ever even heard the, the word kiss. But right. that's the power of music, that it can reach deep in, even if the people don't understand the lyrics. You know, it just touches them and it makes them have that certain feeling 
that we had at the point of creation. You know, Desmond, having written a song like Living on a Prayer, co-written a song like that, that's over a billion. And it's funny you bring that up because I just ran down all the rock songs that hit a billion or more on Spotify. And we talked about that on the air just a few days ago. But uh, I'm I'm, kind of sitting here laughing because we've all heard about how uh, streaming numbers and the payouts aren't quite there. So as a co-writer of a song that has streamed over a billion on Spotify alone, did that yield you a check for about 40 bucks or what? <laughs> it was like $27. <laughs> but it's getting better. It's getting better, right? Is it getting better? I serve on the board of ASCAP, which is, you know, the greatest, you know, performance uh, rights collection um, organization, nonprofit organization. Right. We were just in Washington fighting for songwriters' rights because of AI. Because right. these companies have taken all the music that's on Spotify and YouTube and, you know, every which way, and have what they call scraped it into their system without permission. And they're calling that fair use, except that they're selling a, a subscription to their, to their um, you know, chat box thing. And it's like... They, they didn't. They, we don't have any consent. We don't have any uh, credit, and we don't have any compensation. And so, you know, this is dangerous not only for us as songwriters and music creators, but for people that are, you know, doing all kinds of other kind of creative things, films, and just you know, it just goes on and on. And so, it's a very scary thing, you know, because also. If if kids can just uh, you know write their term paper on uh, AI, they didn't really have to learn anything, did they? And so, you know, right. it's kind of uh, taking the easy way out. And yeah. you know, we have to use our brains in order, you know, often in order to stay smart and and be competitive in the world for real. So you know, I'm very passionate about uh, songwriters' rights. And, you know, I see that, you know, the actors have that problem, you know, of, you know, people feeling free to use their images and putting their images and the sound of their voices into other films or television shows without their consent. You know, we, if we don't have to make new laws, we just have to stick with the laws we have that are called copyright and then everything will be fine. They just have to be, you know, brought into it. You know, along this line of discussion, uh, I just had the honor of um, being asked by Dolly Parton to do an an interview with her. And I went to Nashville and I sat with her for a couple hours. And this is all going to come out actually in a movie theater for her upcoming record. And uh, we we had this great discussion because she made a rock record and she wanted me to talk to her about it. And it was a wonderful afternoon. And she was telling me a story, which I'm sure you had heard about, where in her career, Elvis Presley wanted to record her song, I Will Always Love You, that, of course, Whitney Houston had a mega hit with years later. And she went and met with Elvis, and she was thrilled that Elvis wanted to do her song. And she said that, uh, you know, she couldn't wait to hear Elvis sing it. And as she left the meeting with Elvis, Elvis's manager pulled her aside and said, hey, uh, Dolly, just so you know, if uh, Elvis is going to do your song, we get uh, 51% or something of publishing even though he had nothing to do with the song. And she dug in and didn't give it up. So to this day, Elvis never did the song. 
And she said it was one of the best decisions she ever made in her life, obviously, because later on, Whitney Houston has a huge hit and she retained publishing. I'm curious for you as a young songwriter, as you started to get some heat on you, were you ever in situations like that where artists tried to take stuff that what they were not entitled to? Well, you know, I early on, you know, I we had, you know, I had gotten a call, you know, my manager got a call like on the very first song I wrote with Bon Jovi, You Give Love a Bad Name. And the manager called and said, hey, you know what, um, we'd like to buy you out of the song. And uh, we're willing to pay you $35,000 to walk away, take your name off. That's it. You buy out. And it was like, I, I was furious. I called John and I said, if, if, if your manager continues down this road, we'll never see each other again. And John, you know, to his credit, did the right thing and told, you know, his manager to knock it off. And so, um, you know, that's why we were able to get back together and write Living on a Prayer and, you know, all like that. And I always have insisted on being a, you know, equal writer. And it doesn't matter if one of the writers went out to get Starbucks and by the time they got back, the song was written. If, you know, write a word, get a third. You know, that's how, that's our credo. And so um, it all comes out in the wash that way. And so uh, it's amazing that you mentioned Dolly Parton and her new album, Rockstar, because track number 12 is a song that I co-wrote with Joan Jett called I, I Hate Myself for Loving You. And yes. Joan is featured on that, on that song. Yep, so I, I'm, I haven't heard it yet, but I'm very excited about this because now I can add Dolly Parton to my list of you know, superstars that recorded <laughs> my music. <laughs> yeah, she did a great version of it. I mean, there's, there's, I've heard the whole record because I had to get, get an advance because we did this whole thing that's yet to come out. But she's got 30 songs on the record and an additional four bonus tracks. And on on most of the record, uh, there's eight there's eight original songs, but 22 covers. And on most of the record, there are a bunch of special guests. And I know Joan is on that with her. And yeah, that that, that look, I could talk to you forever about your songs. It's it's truly amazing. But I hate myself for love. Loving you is um is just it's remarkable what that's turned into Dolly covering it and of course a, a, a rewrite version of it has become a football anthem as I'm sure you well know yeah Sunday night football which yeah you know, so how does that how does that feel lyrics on that and so did you did you write those lyrics for the uh, for, fo- for the football version yeah, they sent them to me and I and I you know was tweaking them you know as best as I could to fit you know the the the, the football theme. Uh, but I did work on that. And, um, you know, thank God, you know, that that's the the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, we yeah. had Faith Hill sing it, Pink sang it, uh, Carrie Underwood sang it. Then she then she insisted on replacing it with songs she had written. And by popular demand, they made her go back to, uh, you know, the I Hate Myself for Loving You of Joan Jett. Yeah, no, that's really, really cool. Hey, you know, again, um, so much we can talk about, and I got maybe 15 minutes left, and I appreciate your time. I wanted to ask you, and and I, I really do feel we got to do another round once I really read through the book, because I can't wait to, to dig in. But there's two acts that you worked with that don't come up all that often that I'm curious to get some thoughts on from you uh, in the rock world, because of course, that's, you know, that's what my show is, is mainly about. You did an album that I thought was really cool. I think you served as executive producer on it and had some co-writes on it by Rat. 
I think it was the Detonator album, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. What were your recollections about working with them at the time? Because there's a song on that record. When you talk about the songwriters, like the the hottest songwriters at the time, there's a, so- a song on that record that's a co-write with yourself, Diane Warren, and Stephen Piercy, the singer in Rat, called Giving Yourself Away, that how that didn't become massive at the time, I'll never know. But what was your experience like working with Rat? I had a great time with them. They were very respectful, and they had been having a very hard time with one of their members, King, um, who you know was really struggling with um, drug abuse. Robin and, Crosby. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he ended up, you know, passing away because of it. And um, you know, I had a great time with them, and. You know, I was offered to produce it, but I at that time I had my album Discipline ready to come out, and so I I decided, you know, well I can executive produce and I can write, you know, songs. I I wrote a bunch of songs with them. I I love, you know, loving you is a dirty job. I mean, you know, great. And I'm the man to do it. I mean, it's great just song. so much fun. But the thing is, they were victims of the, um, you know, Nirvana. You know. Right. It took one view of Smells Like Teen Spirit, and all the bands I work with got wiped off the map. You know, I just did a whole show. I just did a whole show about TV. that. What? Yeah, I called it the Great Wall of Nirvana. I just did a whole show about that, about great records that came out after the Gate of Nirvana came down. We just did a whole radio special about that, so I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, all of the bands that I work with became, you know, legacy bands. You know, they they do really well live and also people go back to that music like now more than ever and realize that those songs were great and that a lot of the shoegazer songs that you know people didn't really even have that much skill you know they they maybe were art students that could play four chords and have you know hair in their face and they just look straight down it's like even the body language you know of the bands that i work with was like chest up you know, and then the the next generation was like chest in, look down, <laughs> and so um, I guess that's you know the swings of you know people's taste and you know times change and all of that. It's you know it's always bound to happen, and I really do like modern rock. You know, I mean, I love like Slipknot and all that kind of stuff that happened after that in the '90s and. Um, you know, I, I just discovered a new band, uh, that was well, not new, but they've been around for a while, but I never had heard of them called clone with a K and I don't uh, know them. Baroness, Baroness. Cause I went and got this huge, like Viking tattoo, uh, in the Northern England. And that's all they played like on repeat for the four days that I was there. Uh, and it's just like, <sighs> really nordic sounding there's no blues in it whatsoever and i think there's a place for every kind of music you know and and people should be enjoying all kinds of music when i was a kid in the projects one kid would always have a a transistor radio and there was one station to listen to and you'd hear you know the beatles and and aretha franklin dion warwick You'd hear the Four Seasons, you'd hear the Everly Brothers, you'd hear Wilson Pickett, then you'd hear, you know, James Brown, and then you'd hear, you know, Little Richard, and then you'd hear, you know, like, uh, you know, Dusty Springfield, one song after the other. So we start to have an appreciation of all these different styles, and that's, you know, 
it was fantastic. So that kind of narrow thinking was marketed at the time when all of a sudden they were like, 1,000 stations, all playing rock. You know, it's like uh, that, that kind of narrow view, uh, I think it's hurt uh, the culture of this country. Well, I think it's changed. I think the expo- the way people get music now, uh, because we grew up, of course, in a time where you went to a record store, and I worked in a record store for years, where people would come in and they'd have to make an investment and take a shot on buying a record off of one song they heard on the radio and hope the other nine songs were good. But I think now the way we are we're speaking of Spotify and streaming, which is the way most people digest music, I mean, you know, my kids, I'm sure your kids, I mean, they want to hear songs in, they can click, click, click and go through anything they want and pull up anything they want in two seconds. And I think having that range of like, okay, I'm not making a 10 or $20 investment just to sample a record anymore has probably exposed people to, to not only a lot more, a lot more uh, variety, but also maybe a little more depth in in artist catalogs, although I think people still end up gravitating towards the hit when they click. You know, my sons, they've only listened to almost exclusively urban music and rap. And so the other... How old are they? They're they're 21 years old now. So, um, you know, I came home and I'm hearing like this like twangy stuff. And I went back, it's like, Nero... What are you listening to? Oh, I'm really getting into country music now. It's like, mm. what? He grew up in Nashville and you know, hated country music, and now he loves it. I mean, it's so crazy. But they can do every rap, like, word, like syllable by syllable of, like, the last, you know, their whole lives. And so, you know, I, I think it's because it's a music that I really, you know, I'm not in. So they found their own music that wasn't the stuff that daddy likes, you know, (laughs) that daddy writes, you know, um, you know, it's, 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 it really is a great thing, but at the same time they should pay us, you know, what is, what, what, you know, because the fact is that, you know, when, when, uh, we were working on trying to push through the music modernization act, uh, you know, to try to raise our rates a little bit, um, you know, a lot of these Congress people, they thought that we had no overhead expenses to write a song. They thought we'd just sit on a porch with a banjo on our knee and a corn pipe, and that was, you know, <laughs> that was our expense, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I had to explain that you know, it's like, I have a studio, I pay rent on the studio. I'm upgrading my equipment all the time. I have to have engineers. I have to. Uh, I have to have programmers. I have to have assistants. I, I have to have lawyers to make my. You know, my production deals. I'm. I mean, it's like <laughs> there's hardly anything in it at the end, but you just have to do it because that's all you know how to do. You know, I don't have a B plan for music. That's for. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Well, you know, the the other act I wanted to hit you with real quickly that you made a record with that I thought was a really interesting record was you did a, you did some work with Scorpions. What is your recollection of working with those guys? Well, you know, um I had done Bad Out of Hell 3, which by the way is a masterpiece. Um, Meat you know, Loaf, with Meatloaf, yeah. it took me 9 months to make it. And um, you know, the, it's not that accessible in the United States. You know, because at the end, he felt bad that he made the record without Jim Steinman. 
So mm-hmm. he's kind of, you know, at the end, you know, because he owned the rights to the U.S. version. In Europe, it's, you know, all over. Every, every, everybody knows the record and it's on Spotify and all that. But then we had a uh, kind of like a cast party of the hundred people that worked on Bad Out of Hell 3. I mean, it was a lot of people. And I had this party in my house and the Scorpions showed up. And, you know, they they showed up and they were like cowboy hats, gold chains, leopard shirts, uh, you know, like uh, ripped <laughs> jeans and cowboy boots, right? They're from Germany. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, you know, we want you to, you know, produce our next record. So, uh, and so I, I, I like the, um, the, the challenge of it because I always loved the Scorpions. And so um, I, I put together a team of songwriters and we collaborated um, and made this record that had a very strong uh, theme that's now more relevant than ever called Humanity Hour One. Right. And um, it was, all the songs were about the battle between uh, AI and ro- robotics and human beings and soul. And so if you, every song, it's, it's almost like a theatrical piece. And, uh, you know, at the end, there's this epic song called Humanity. And, uh, you know, it's, it's got all of that kind of like um, authoritarian sound to it. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's just so great. And, and one of my kids, Roman, um, at the end of it, he, uh, he says, um, it's time. And he has this little scratchy voice. And so the thing is, is that I, I, I don't think they actually understood the record they made with, with me. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't understand the epic scope of it. And, right. um, you know, at that time, their manager was, you know, just having them play like, you know, Schlagerfelds, you know, like beer halls and stuff. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, I wanted to trans, you know, like, transport them and so i got them in styled like they were like like european art band like more like u2 and um then we had this liam call he was a futurist that did all this animated stuff or like where he took you know these beautiful models and gave them like like rip skin and you could see the robotics inside and everything and they were in bunkers and there was fire and flames and there was all this kind of stuff like it was the end of the world and it's more relevant now than ever. It's yeah. unbelievable. So sometimes yeah. you get a little bit ahead of your time. <laughs> Desmond, one, two quick things, and, and I'll let you go because I'm going to have to wrap here in a second. Throughout your career, most of the songwriting you've done has been collaborations, whether it's you know with Paul Stanley, with uh, you know with uh, John and, and and Richie, of course, for Bon Jovi, uh, whoever it may be, you know, there's been coll- most of the stuff has been collaborative. Do you is that your preference to work that way, or have you written a lot of songs where you are the sole songwriter? Well, when I had my group Desmond Child and Rouge, I mean, had actually have because we're still working together and making music. Um, I was basically solo writing, and then you know I'd do an occasional co-write with either Maria Vidal, you know, who's the original Gina of uh, Tommy and Gina, and um, and then once I got into co-writing with Paul Stanley, and other bands started calling. I, it was the path of least resistance because when I did write a song that I wasn't with an artist, I wasn't getting cuts. So the the secret weapon was write with the band, you know, write with the main 
you know, like the main singer and, and the lead guitar player, because that's the person that usually says, I don't like the song. So when if you write with both of those two people, uh, usually the rest of the band falls in with it. And so it was mm-hmm. a, a survival technique. Um, you know, I, I, I really don't enjoy being alone. That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. I had a lonely childhood. So I love the sandbox I, with friends. And I love the laughter and the jokes and the gossip. You know, when you're sitting there kind of all gloomy and your hands on a piano trying to write what's in your heart, I don't know. That doesn't sound like fun to me. Uh, but I did write a, a, a song on my own uh, called Lady Liberty, uh, which I wrote for Barbara Streisand, and she and I co-produced it on her last uh, you know, studio album called Walls. And, you know, if you go and watch the video, the lyric video of Lady Liberty, I mean, it's stunning. And, you know, she sang like, like she was 20 years old. I mean, she sang just all those big notes and she put her heart into it because it was something that she was feeling deeply, you know, and it was a tribute to the Statue of Liberty and to freedom and to, you know, the importance of our country um, representing, you know, being the beacon through the golden door for opportunity from people all over the world. And, you know, all of a sudden the, the Statue of Liberty, you know, is, was getting uh, deported somebody even said we should give her back to France <laughs> because she was inviting immigrants into the country. I swear to God, a congressman was trying to put a bill through that, that, that was like, we're done with her. She's a woman. She's inviting immigrants. What the heck, you know, send her back to France. <laughs> the, like the ultimate symbol of liberty. <laughs> She's even called the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> And so this song is stunning, and um, you know I've been working on a Broadway show called Cuba Libre, and it's the true story of my family before and after the Cuban Revolution, and that's really a huge you know goal for me is to get on Broadway somehow, some way, and this work has been going on since 2005. We've had all these different directors. We've done all these workshops. We have a new director, a new producer. We're getting ready to do a workshop in New York City in the first week of December and backers auditions and all that. We're back in the saddle on that. And so, you know, the thing is, it's like, you know, when you're writing a song like Living Our Prayer, that's cinematic in its own way. It's four minutes. But when you write a two-hour piece with all these inter connecting stories and and beautiful themes and all that when you walk in the entrance you're one person when you when they push you out the exit and the other side of the building uh you're transformed and that to me is a great great thing to to reach for and uh so i've been doing that and and uh, you know of course you know promoting my book living on a prayer big songs big life because, uh, you know, well, actually, I had a bunch of big songs, but my life's bigger than my songs, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of like scary, right? And yeah. um, and also, I have a skincare line, that, you know, because I, somebody told me if you're a celebrity, you have to have a skincare line. So I created one called Vida Loca Skincare, right, Vida Loca Skin Life dot com. And so it's, you know, our slogan is um, skin has no gender. Okay. You know, and it's it's kind of like one of those things. It's like, 
um, all natural and all this because I always loved my mom's like little lotions and potions I wasn't allowed to touch, you know, and the smell of them and all that. So, you know, people make fun of me because when I travel, I have like two suitcases of all my lotions and potions, you know, when I travel. <laughs> It's like, Daddy. You're a nightmare, you're a nightmare <laughs> going through TSA. They're like, you're way over the two-ounce limit. Oh, <laughs> Desmond, you got to yeah, go back. No, no, no. I have to put them through luggage. You know, it's like. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, I'm trying to do all these fun things now because when else am I going to do them? Yeah. And, hey, uh, man, I don't mean, I don't mean to cut, I don't mean to cut you off, but. I don't mean to cut you off, but I have to because i got a hard ending here. But yes. it's wonderful to talk to you. Thank, Thank you for you. all the great music. The book is out now, Living on a Prayer, Big Songs, Big Life. And we absolutely have to do another round when I get a chance to dig through the book a little bit more. Please but uh, I will. Congratulations on everything, man. And I can't Thank wait to talk so to much, you again. Eddie. All right. Bye. See you, Desmond. Bye-bye. Always great to talk to Desmond. And I'll tell you what, I could spend hours talking to that guy because his catalog is absolutely amazing as far as the songs that he has been a part of. Unfortunately, I've not had the time to read that book in its entirety, but I look forward to doing so soon and getting into more of those stories, maybe even do another interview with him at some point in the future. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everybody. Again, if you don't have SiriusXM Radio, you can try it for free for three months, no credit card required. All you got to do is go to SiriusXM.com slash Eddie Trunk, get that three-month free trial subscription, and listen to the radio show each and every day. It's live Monday through Friday, 3 to 5 Eastern, noon to 2 Pacific, Faction Talk, Channel 103, or anytime full shows and interviews, audio, video, and more on the SiriusXM app. And again, follow on social media at Eddie Trunk, X, Instagram, or the Facebook page, for info and updates on everything I have going on in the world of rock. Next appearance, if you happen to be in Tulsa, I'll be there this coming Friday at the Graffiti Lounge with John Karabi. Keep an eye on my socials for info and updates. If you're on the radio side of things, uh, you can absolutely get ready for a Power Trip special that was recorded at the recent Power Trip That'll be airing on my radio show soon, and that features interviews with members of Iron Maiden, Guns N' Roses, uh, Duff McKagan, as I mentioned, from Guns, Nicole McBrain from Maiden, Ian Hill and Richie Faulkner of Judas Priest, Lars Ulrich of Metallica, Chris Robinson of The Black Crows, Scotty Hill from Skid Row, some folks that were just hanging out. So get ready for that special coming soon. Uh, to the radio show on Sirius XM Radio. We'll see if we can bring it to you as a podcast somewhere down the line. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Hope you catch you. Uh, hope you catch me on the radio. If not, I'll catch you back here next Thursday for another podcast. <laughs>